This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. Do you remember when we were talking about the last words of Christ? And uh, whenever somebody talks about the last seven sayings of Christ, they always talk about those last seven sayings when he was on the cross. And we went through these one at a time and, and tried to understand exactly what they meant. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Uh, today you'll be with me in paradise when he had the exchange with one of the two thieves. I thirst right before um, the wrath was poured out on him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this takes place uh, during the darkness time when God is, is atoning for our sins. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And of course it is finished to tell us I paid in full and we're done. But there's another section of the last words of Christ. And, and again, if you Google it or if you talk to any pastor about the last seven last words of Christ, they'll always point to those. But really, we're looking at the last words of Christ here because he had quite a few things to say after the crucifixion and after his resurrection. One we're going to look at today is this one. Peace be with you. We find it in verse 19 and verse 21. As the Father has sent me... I also send you. We're also going to look at that that one tonight. Receive the Holy Spirit. This one too. Then we have, do not be unbelieving, but believing. This happened when Thomas came and said, you know, I won't believe unless Jesus proves himself to me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed in the same dialogue here. Feed my sheep or feed my lambs. That's in chapter 21 when he basically restores Peter and asks Peter, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I do. Then feed my sheep. And then finally, final words of Christ pretty much are really summed up in you follow me. Don't worry about John. Don't worry about what he's doing. Don't ask questions about anybody else, but you, Peter, follow me. And so this is really the first day of the resurrection. It's the first day of the new life of the disciples when they realize that everything Jesus told them actually came true. So let me read the first 18 verses here and bring us up to date in context. It says, now on the first day of the week, day of new beginning, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She then ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, which we know is John, and said to them, they, meaning somebody else like grave robbers, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we, because as we talked about it before, there were other women in this entourage that are heading to the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciples and were going to the tomb. They both ran so they, they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes cloth lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief or the head wrap or the sweat rag that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together or wrapped together, as we talked about, in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who, who came into the tomb first also went, also went in also, and he saw and believed. And again, John was the first one who believed in the resurrection. For as yet they, they did not know the scripture that he must arise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own home. But Mary, verse 11, stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, one sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? 
And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Again, thinking maybe it was grave robbers or something. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Nobody who saw Christ, it seems, knew immediately it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Rather bold statement for a woman. Jesus, I don't know, 180 pound man with another 100 pounds of spices with him. It had been kind of difficult for her to do that, but she was that intent on returning her Lord. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. And again, we talked about what that word means. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she has seen the Lord and they had spoken these things to her. Nobody knows what happened the rest of the day. I mean, I'm sure the disciples were running around meeting with each other and trying to figure out what happened. And Mary said this. She may have repeated her story a dozen times. She may have hooked up with the other ladies who were down at the tomb, who the Bible says Jesus also met and said, peace unto you at that time. And don't really know, but the the group gathered back together again when evening came about. Um, on the very same day, and we don't know where that was, but it was obviously a pretty big room, and it may have been the room uh, that they had the Last Supper in. It may have been the same room that the early church met in for 10 days in prayer that we talk about in the book of Acts. But we're going to look at verse number 19 and following, and I want you to see the intricacies here of all that's happening. It says, then the same day at evening, this happens during the morning, um, As a matter of fact, it begins, this chapter begins while it was still dark, and now it's evening time. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week on that Sunday, when the doors were shut. The word can mean shut, the word can mean closed, the word also means locked. I mean, it was like they were in this room and they were barricaded. Something had happened, they had met the Lord Jesus, They'd seen the empty tomb. Some of the people had talked to the angels. Some of the ladies had actually talked to Jesus himself. He gave them certain instructions. Go tell my disciples, and especially Peter, that I'm going ahead of them into Galilee, just like I said. Their mind was open. John already believed in the resurrection. Maybe some of the other disciples at this time were believing in the resurrection. Yet, like carnal, fallen this earth-focused man, just like you and I would be, they're still worried about their own personal life. It says that the doors were shut or closed or locked where the disciples were assembled. Well, why? Why would they even do that? For fear of the Jews. I mean, they were still afraid of this body, still afraid of what was going to happen to them. And I I find it amazing after 2,000 years and 2020 hindsight to look at them and go, dude, I mean, come on. I mean, talk about not getting it together. I mean, you, what is wrong with you people? but I'm sure I would be exactly the same way. Yes, Jesus is raised from the dead, but I, I know what crucifixion is like, and I saw, you know, they told me about how bad the flogging was, and I don't want that to happen to me, and even though I know God is sovereign, and even I know he, he, even I know that he loves me, and even though I know he sees the end from the beginning, and even though I know that nothing passes uh, away from his will, the fact is I still fret and I worry about stupid stuff, don't you? about money, about a bad doctor report, about a job, about what's going to happen here, about a relationship, about this situation I can't seem to control. So I'm not dissing on these guys because I've probably been in the room too and said, you need to shut the door. We're going to have our quiet little huddle. We're going to get together and discuss about all the things that went on. We're just going to kind of fellowship together because it's an us and them kind of mentality because they hate us and they're darkness and we're light. So they're in the room. The doors are shut because they were afraid of the Jews. In the midst of that, in the middle of that fear, Jesus came out of nowhere, right through the wall, right through the door. It doesn't say there was a knock and he opened the door and like it was when Peter escaped from prison and Rhoda looks at him and oh, closes the door in his face and goes back and tells the other guys they don't believe it's really him. And No, he just, he just appeared right in front of them. And he said to them a phrase that he's going to use twice now in about four verses, peace be with you. 
it's pretty much the transliteration in the Greek of, uh, of shalom in the Hebrew. You know, peace. It's, um, it's, it's, it's a deeper word than just have a great day or hope things go well with you. Or when you go to Walmart and you check out, I was at, uh, I was at Food Lion yesterday and I'm checking out and uh, the guy was really friendly. He was so friendly, I figured he hadn't worked there that long. Because if you've worked there a long time as a cashier, you kind of lose your friendliness. You know, He's just having a great time. So I was up there and I said, uh, hey, how long have you been working here? Oh, it's my third week. Yeah, I can tell. You know, and it's, you know, he's blowing everything up. And when we left, he said, have a blessed day, which is code, by the way. Did you all realize that? That's code that he's a Christian. Instead of having a good day, you say, have a blessed day. And so and that's really great. And, and so sometimes, you know, that word, have a blessed day, is kind of a code that lets us know he's a Christian. And sometimes the word shalom is just like, hey, how you doing? Or hi, or, you know, be blessed. Or, you know, may the grace of God be with you. And it really doesn't, we lose the end impact of what Jesus is saying. He's not walking into this group of people and saying, hey, be blessed, or peace, or shalom. It means something much deeper than that. The word peace here, when he talks about peace be with you, is defined in the Greek as the opposite of war and dissension. Among individuals, this word is, is, means harmony, or metaphorically it refers to having a peace of mind or tranquility or rest, all arising from a reconciliation with God and a sense of divine favor. There's a context to this peace. There's some sort of war, some sort of wrath, some sort of anger, and some sort of dissension that's out there that all of a sudden it's the absence of that's been taken away. It, it means there's harmony now and there's tranquility within myself and also with other people. And I understand that that tranquility is based on the fact that I have been reconciled with God because of an act that I couldn't perform. Because of what Christ had done. I mean, that's how the word peace was defined back then. And so when Jesus comes to them and says, peace with you, he's talking about the peace that he acquired from them on the cross. It's a whole lot more than, well, I, I just asked for the Lord's peace. So what does that mean? I don't know, this calm feeling, this anxiety being taken away. Oh, that, that's, that's the personal peace. That's the tranquility and rest and abiding peace. And Okay, and, and, and why do you want that peace? Or how does that peace come? Well, I really thought I was going to get in a lot of trouble and I thought that when I went to the judge because of the speeding ticket that, you know, he's going to take my license or find me $600 and I went in there and, and it was like 20 bucks and I got to keep my license and oh, the situation's passed. I just feel such peace. Much deeper than that. It's, it's like warring factions coming together and now there's a peace. And those warring factions are not, you know, me and Debbie. Those warring factions is God pouring out his wrath on me. God is angry with the sinners every day, it says in the Old Testament. And my relationship with God, which is anything but his justice and wrath being poured out on someone who has just stuck their fist in his face has now been abated and now there's peace and there's there's no more war and no more dissension because what if, what Christ has done. Understand, this is not a common Jewish greeting. I just want to show you a couple other passages. Karen tells me that I just show 20 passages. Three's enough. Okay, well, when I'm cutting the middle, I'm going to show you seven. Fair enough? <laughs> I have to taper it down slowly. I just get excited when I find these. Anyway, and unfortunately, you have to hear it. John 14, 27. It's not a Jewish greeting. It says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. What peace is that? Well, it's the peace that I'm not angry with you, but more so it's this calm, tranquil peace, knowing that I'm in a center of God's will, that I'm on the apple of his eye, that I'm, I have his divine favor, that he is sovereign and that he loves me. And no matter what circumstances I go through, which is betrayal and denial and flogging and crucifixion and death, even during all of those that he stands with me and will never leave me. That's the kind of peace Christ offers us. And he tells us the peace I give you is not as the world gives to you. So therefore, let your heart, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid of anything. Peace, he says, be with you. John 16, 33. These things I've spoken to you, Jesus says, that in me, in Christ, 
You may have this kind of tranquility. You may have this kind of calmness. You may have this kind of assurance that I see the end from the beginning, that no one can snatch you out of my hand, that there's nothing in this world that can separate you from the love of God. Remember all that? In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I, Christ says, have already overcome the world. In Acts 9.31, I love this. Paul is out there preaching. The gospel's being spread. Gentiles are getting saved. And it says, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace. I mean, they had peace not only from the Jewish factions that were attacking them, but, but this, is like, this is like Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. The gospel's been being moved down. But they had peace with themselves. They had peace with God. And that peace, once they experienced it, look how it manifested themselves. They had peace and were therefore built up and therefore edified. And what does that mean in the flesh? And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. And why not? If you met somebody who was going through immense turmoil and immense trial, and yet they had some sort of peace that passes all understanding that you can't understand how they can still have a smile on their face and still love other people when they have been persecuted and been downtrodden so much, that kind of individual, their faith is just contagious, is it not? There's a couple of, there's a couple of women that uh, I have followed over the past four or five years, who have had cancer and have died. One was a lady named Kara Tippett. Um, she, wrote a, she wrote a blog that talked about her cancer treatments. Her husband was a pastor, had like five or six kids, four or five kids. He went out to start a church in Colorado, and they were out there, and fire broke out, and the big fire they had out in Colorado, and uh, it almost burnt their house down, and, and she fell, and they took her to the doctor, and she had breast cancer, and metastasized and she quit taking treatments after a long time and she wrote these blog posts about how great God is and how wonderful he is even in a cancer trial things she was thankful for I followed it all the time Karen did too and they you know um um some book publishing company um David C. Cook just asked if they could just pull all these together and publish it in a book and and uh, you just watched her day by day, week by week, get thinner and thinner and thinner. She always had this smile on her face the more she became emaciated. And then finally she passed away. And I was so blown away by that, that, you know, she's, I mean, she was like 38 years old, I think, maybe 40. And, and she suffered immensely and never left her faith and her her. her the peace she had during all of this, knowing she's not going to see her kids again until heaven and leave her husband and, you know, all the things that she was going to do with her life got sidetracked out of the sovereignty of God. It was, it was absolutely, um, absolutely amazing. And there was this um, country duo named um, Roy and Joey and, and uh, sang some songs together and she got breast cancer and gave birth to their first child. She was 40 when she died, gave birth to their first child. And the child has Down syndrome. And, um, you know, she had blogs and videos and all the kind of stuff. And hers was a little more graphic than Kara Tippett because it also sh- showed her, her the dark side of that and the physical suffering that she went through. And, and she finally passed away and left her husband with a Down syndrome daughter that uh, to raise on his own. And you know, the, the family and the community rallied around. And it's just an incredible story of the peace that you just can't understand. Because normally when bad stuff happens to us, we cry out, oh, God, why me? But it's this, this incredible peace that these churches had and some of these believers had that, that means that even in a dark time, I'm in a tranquil state because I know my life has been reconciled with God because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus as evidenced by his resurrection that happened on this very day. In Romans chapter 5, look what it says. Therefore, having been justified by faith, now I know that I'm saved. What happens when I know that I'm justified by faith, that I'm judicially pardoned? It says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I now have peace with God because I'm justified because of this, the penalty that Christ paid for me, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then the longest passage, and the last one I think I'm going to show you here, talks about the peace we have 
with Christ takes our sinful man and does away with him and creates a new man in us. And it also brings together in the church the two most contentious factions we find in Scripture, Jews and everybody else. You have the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews are the apple of God's eyes. The Jews are persecuted people. The Jews have all these weird rules to make them separate from everybody else. And then you have us, which are just just trash compared to the Jews. They want nothing to do with us. And how God and it doesn't have Jew and Gentile anymore, but he takes Jew and Gentile, melds them together into one, which is called the church. And there's no more enmity between God and the church and no more enmity between Jew and Gentile because we're all one in him and experience his peace. I mean, that's the context of what Paul is talking about here. And look what he says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, meaning I was a Gentile, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How? How did that happen? For Christ, he himself is our peace. He's our cessation of hostilities. He's our tranquility. He's our, is our resting point. Who has made both one, Jew and Gentile one, how? And has broken down the middle wall of separation between us and God and between Jew and Gentile, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinance, which separated God from man and also separated Jew from Gentile, because the Jews would say you must follow the law and the Gentiles thought it made no sense. And what he did is so as to create in himself one new man. And that man is now the church. Jew, Gentile, church from the two, thus now making peace, peace with God and peace with each other. Verse 16, so that he might, God reconcile, I'm sorry, he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body, the church, through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity, the enmity with us and God and the enmity with each other. Verse 17 and 18, and he came and preached peace. I find that amazing. Jesus came and preached, and Paul summed up the entire gospel message as peace, peace with God. He, he preached peace to you who are far off, which is the Gentiles, and to those who are near the Jews, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Even the gospel message that Paul said Christ preached can be all summed up in that one word that Jesus used, peace. Do you realize how blessed we are? I mean, sometimes I, sometimes it just doesn't hit me. Um, you know, um, I forget what a reprobate I was before I got saved. And I, you know, I've been a Christian such a long time that you forget what he saved us from. And, and, that God was angry with me every day and, and there was nothing good in me. There's nothing that sought after God until God placed it in me. And then all of a sudden there was peace that he and I are okay. And there have been times when I've really felt burdened. I've really felt oppressed. And I don't know if it was my sin or my apathy or I don't know what it was. And I would get ready to pray and I couldn't. I just, I really struggled with it. And I'd be sitting at my desk and I would confess my sins and do everything I could to, to try to, I don't know, open up a communication that was obviously blocked on my part. And I, and I can't tell you the number of times I've done this. I've, I've just looked up to heaven and I've said this, are we okay? And his response is always, yeah. And then I felt this peace. You know, are we okay? Yeah, we're okay. I just I want to make sure we're okay. I want to make sure there's nothing standing between me and you. And yeah, Steve, we're Okay, and then the peace comes. The peace that doesn't change your circumstances, but the peace that changes you. So Jesus comes and says, peace be with you. Understand, Christ not only offers us peace with God, no longer at war with him, but he also offers us the peace of God. The peace that, that's the peace Jesus was talking about that, that surpasses all understanding. How can I have the kind of peace that God has? Not just with God, but also of God. And here's an example of that. The Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing, which is the opposite of peace, being anxious. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And in other words, and leave them there. I have made my request to God. We're done. There's nothing more I can do. 
And when that happens, and it says the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and minds through Christ Jesus. Peace with God and peace of God. So I've asked myself this question. I really struggled with it today, as a matter of fact. What, um, what, what keeps us from experiencing peace? Well, I just, I'm worried. Well, what are you worried about? I'm worried about either thing God, things God hasn't taken care of yet or things I'm afraid God is going to take care of different than I want him to. I'm, I'm worried that the, my desires aren't going to be made. I'm worried that God's going to make me do something I don't want to do. God, what, what, a, what a terrible thing to say about our God. You know what I mean? I can't say, when I was growing up, the most fearful place in the world was to go to Africa. And I don't know why that was. It just was. Maybe it's, we just came out of the civil rights stuff and all that kind of stuff. But deathly afraid. If I ever give my life to Jesus, he's going to send me as a missionary to Africa. You know, we're all scared to death. Do you remember that? <laughs> just scared to death of going to Africa. So I, I don't want to do that because I, I would die over that. But that's exactly how God is. As soon as you give him your life, he puts you in the absolutely worst place possible. So you're going to die. You know, I mean, isn't that, isn't that what we would do with our kids? Dad, please don't let me do this. No, you're doing it now. I mean, we never do that, but we superimpose on those things on God. What keeps me from experiencing is peace, sir. Why, why, why can't I trust him? Why, why am I still anxious for stuff when I prayed and laid it at his feet and I believe he's sovereign, he can do anything he wants, but if he doesn't do it quick enough or fast enough according to my agenda, then I have to do it from him, for him, then I get myself in a jam and, and sometimes it takes forever to get out of. Why is that? It's either we have a faulty view of Christ and we understand that we, or we still don't understand that we are literally complete in him. Well, I'm not going to be complete unless I have a girl or unless I have a guy. No, you are complete in him. If he decides to bless you with a spouse, that's wonderful, but you're complete in him without one. You're completing him without the job that you think you want. You're completing him without the, you know, the looks that you think you need or the money you're going to make or all the things that we worry about and fret about. We're complete in him. For in him, Colossians 2 says, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and I am complete in him. Not complete in myself, but I'm only complete in him. And I'm telling him, I literally can count on both hands the number of counseling appointments I've had over the last 30 years that haven't all had the root problem is people not realizing they're complete in Christ. There's always something lacking. They're not meeting my needs. She's not doing what I said she, she should do. Well, he's not loving me like I think I need to be loved. My kids aren't doing this, or my job's not doing this, or God's not doing this. And there's all this big open hole realizing that you're already complete in Christ completely. Totally, without reservation. Now, I have passed these out to you before. I'm going to do it one more time and let you guys uh, put these in your Bible to help you on days that you're not sure if you're complete in Him. I find myself doing this a lot when I'm really struggling. It even happened today. I was... That's, you know, I had a hard time connecting with the Lord, and I felt this oppression, and I uh, struggled with who I am in Christ, and so I just, I have to confess the sins that I know to confess. I asked the Lord to fill me with the Spirit, and then sometimes I'll just get this out, and I'll read it out loud. And it's just from the, from the Scriptures, and it just reminds me of who I am. I'm not who the world says I am. I'm not who my limitations cry out and tell me that I am. I am who Christ says I am, and I'm complete in Him. I'm accepted, I'm secure, and I'm important to him. I'm significant to him. And then you just go through these verses. I'm God's child, Christ's friends. I've been justified. I'm united with the Lord. I'm in one spirit with him. I mean, good night. What do I care if this clique over here, or these people over here, or these friends over here won't accept me? I'm accepted by him. I am secure. The world is full of insecurity. The world is full of fear and you have terrorist attacks over here and looming economic collapse and corruption in the government and yawn and yawn and yawn. But the fact is, I'm secure. I'm secure and I am free forever from condemnation. Forever. I'm assured that all things work together for good. I'm, I cannot be separated from the love of God. And then I'm significant. I'm the salt and light of the earth. I'm a branch of the true vine, a channel of his love. I have been chosen and appointed to bear fruit out of all the 
billions of people that have ever lived on the earth, God chose me and God chose you. So who cares if these guys don't choose me? I'm already chosen. Isn't that great? And so when you go through a tough time, are you struggling with that kind of stuff? Stick this in your Bible and pull it out. And sometimes it's good like a mental affirmation just to renew your mind with the truth and just uh, repeat these things to yourself because I do it quite a lot. For in him, Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Verse 20. As when he has said this, now watch this. I've often wondered how this really transpired. And it wasn't until I broke down the Greek and started looking at this, it started making more sense. And when he had said this, peace be with you, I don't know what their reaction was between the end of verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20, but something obviously happened. He comes into the group and says, peace be unto you. And they were probably terrified, weren't you? And they probably eat up with guilt. I would be. We don't see Peter running out and just going, Lord, he's probably hanging in the shadows. I mean, I'm, I mean, these guys have run, except for John, these guys have run afraid for three days and three nights. And all of a sudden he shows up in the crowd of them and says, peace be unto you. They may have been terrified. They may have been frightened. It may be the fact they didn't recognize him. You know, if you remember, Mary didn't recognize him. So he spoke the word. The men on Emmaus, they didn't recognize him. And they walked with him quite a ways and had a conversation with him. And it wasn't until they sat down to have a meal and he broke the bread and maybe spread it like this that they realized who it was and that Jesus was taken away from them. It may be that they weren't even sure who it was. But whatever happened, and verse 20, it says, And when he had said this, he showed them his hands. The word showed means to point out to cause to see. It wasn't like he pointed over here and they said, oh, look at his hands. It's him. He is the one that actually showed them his hands. It, It is me. It really is me. Peace be to you. I'm pointing out my hands. I'm making you, I'm causing you to see my hands. Then it says, and it then implies after he had shown them his hands, and sighed, it said the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Doesn't say they were glad prior to that, but when he showed them his hands, and I don't know how he showed them the side. Maybe did he have a rip in his tunic and he just lifted it up? Remember, they had tunics and have shirts like we have. And so he showed him the spear wound in his side and his hands. And then after that took place, they were and this is one of those terrible translations in the English, they were glad. Glad to me is this. Oh, I'm glad. Hey, I just got accepted in, you know, in this great college I wanted to go to. Oh, I'm, I'm glad. Hey, I'm getting married on Thursday. I'm glad. You know, it's glad rap, and everybody's glad, you know, the spray, glad spray, and, you know, just kind of a weak, anemic word. But it means to rejoice exceedingly. They were jumping off the walls. They were pumped. They were excited because, yes, this is really the Christ. And he came and offered himself to them. Peace be with you. I've overcome the world. Showed them his hands. Showed them his sides. And when that had happened, they rejoiced in the Lord. Then Jesus turns around and says to them exactly what he said the first time. Now, is that because they weren't experiencing that peace? Or did they not experience it the first time? Oh, guys, look, it's okay. It's okay. I'm alive here. And now he says it again. No, now I want you to experience this peace. Then he said to them again, peace to you. And then an instruction. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. As the Father sent me, I also send you. This is John's version of the Great Commission, where Jesus turns around and and tells everybody what they're supposed to do now that he's raised from the dead. The Great Commission occurs five times in the New Testament. It occurs in each gospel account, and it also occurs in the beginning of the book of Acts. And in each one of those gospel accounts and in the beginning of the book of Acts, there's a different emphasis on this Great Commission. This is amazing. Watch this. Matthew emphasizes the authority of the Lord. Here's, what, here's his great commission. <clears throat> and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority 
has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Because I have all authority, and the word is exosia here, it's not deutimos. Some translations say, and all power, but again, power can mean explosive power or authority power. This is authority. It says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Because of that, and I'm delegating that authority to you, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age Amen. Great commission in Matthew, the focus is on the authority. Mark, the focus is on the final judgment. Not just the authority, but what's going to happen at the very end. Look what he says. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The great commission. Here's the final judgment. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. Mark, Mark, uh, Matthew didn't even talk about that. Matthew talks about the authority we have in Christ to go make disciples of all nations. Mark says we're going to preach the gospel to everybody, and if you're saved, you have eternal life, and if you don't saved, you're going to be condemned. There's a final judgment element here. Luke talks about the Great Commission as a fulfillment of prophecy. He starts out by saying, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary. Fulfilling prophecy here for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And Acts talks about a pattern of world evangelism. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even unto the end of the earth. Each one of the gospel accounts has an element of the Great Commission here. Even, um, even John. Only John doesn't tell us you know, how we're supposed to geographically go about world evangelism. John tells us the mode, or John tells us how Jesus shares with us the mode and the method we're to use to share Christ with other people. And this is what really convicted me. This is what made me see that I've, I've kind of missed it for a while. Here's what John Stott says, the quote I was telling you about. He says, We learn then that the church's very first need before it can begin to engage in evangelism and experience an assurance of Christ's peace. Peace of conscience through his death that banishes sin. Peace of mind through the resurrection that banishes doubt. Once we are glad that we have seen the Lord and once we have clearly recognized him as our crucified and risen Savior, then there is Nothing and no one who will be able to silence us once we have his peace. The pattern of evangelism that John reveals to us is found in two words, as and also. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. The same way the Father sent me is the same way I'm sending you. We, as pastors, um, we say we're pastors and then you have evangelists. And pastors' jobs are to deal with the flock and evangelist jobs are to go out and share Christ with other people. And some evangelists do, but the vast majority of evangelists come back to the church and hold special meetings in the church called revivals where they preach an evangelistic message to congregations that are by and large saved. True? So who goes out there? Well, the missionaries go out there and occasionally a certain evangelists will go out there, Ray Comfort and people of that nature. But Jesus, Jesus never, Jesus never brought people to him to hear the gospel message. He always took the gospel to them and he got involved in their lives and he got his hands dirty and he did exactly what you did with that lady. You know, she offended you and she stole something from you and you confronted her and you got that back from her and then you went and blessed her and you've invited her to church in spite of your sin. You've shown grace to her. You've gotten your hands dirty in her life. And that's the New Testament model. It's exactly what Jesus did. He hung around tax collectors. He hung around harlots. He hung around thieves. He hung around people like me, the, the sanctimonious people who would have nothing to do with those kind of people, the, the Pharisees, the whitewashed sepulchers. He had nothing to do with those kind of people. As a matter of fact, they're the ones that Jesus said woes to. Never once did Jesus condemn someone for their sin. Always showed them grace and forgiveness and told them not to sin anymore, but he condemned the Pharisees and the whitewashed sepulchers, the church, pretty much, for their inability or unwillingness to go out 
they're ministering to those people because their life may corrupt us. Here's the quote. I personally believe that our failure to obey the implication of this command is the greatest weakness of the evangelical Christians in the field of evangelism today. We do not identify. We believe so strongly and rightly in proclamation, proclaiming the truth, that we tend to proclaim our message from a distance. We sometimes appear like people who shout advice to drowning men from the safety of the seashore. We do not dive in to rescue them. We're afraid of getting wet and indeed of greater perils than this. But Jesus Christ did not broadcast salvation from the sky. He visited us in great humility. We cannot give up preaching, for proclamation is of the essence of salvation. Yet true evangelism, evangelism that is modeled on the ministry of Jesus, is not proclamation without identification any more than it is identification without proclamation. Evangelism involves both together. What we've done in our culture today, if we've decided to identify with lost people but not preach to them, not share the gospel with them. So I'll go to their parties, I'll hang out with them, I'll build a bridge. I'll, I'll build a bridge that allows me to, to speak to, to Galen. So I'm going to hang with her friends, I'm going to laugh at her dirty jokes, I'm going to watch the same movie she watches, I'm going to involved in the same sin, so that when she trusts me, then I can share with her about Christ, how my life is no different than hers. So we spend all our time in our culture identifying and never evangelizing. But it's equally wrong just to evangelize without getting involved in the lives of hurting people. And I applaud you for what you did. That's, that's, that's Christ's way, you know? Verse 21. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. There's two kind of confusing passages here that raise a lot of questions. This is the first one. Receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, but that just happened. That happens in Acts chapter 2. So, so what's happening here? Is this like a pretaste of what's going to happen? Did they receive the Holy Spirit and lose the Holy Spirit? Or were they received the Holy Spirit but weren't baptized in the Holy Spirit? Because this was a brand new experience for Peter in Acts chapter 2. I mean, what's happening here in this upper room? What was the purpose of this? Or what aspect of the Holy Spirit did Jesus know they needed? You know, the, yeah, the fruit of the Spirit. Fruits of the Spirit, of peace, love, joy, on and on and on. And yeah, I believe that what happened here is what Jesus was giving them was one of the fruits of the Spirit and giving them a taste of the Spirit, which happens to be His peace. I mean, that's the peace they were struggling with the most. Jesus, are you and I okay? Because I promised I would stick with you and I didn't. Is God okay? Is... Um, I mean, am I okay with everybody else? And Peter got up and shot his mouth off saying he's going to be the greatest among all. And, you know, I mean, it was just, it's been a disaster these last three days. And I'm absolutely overwhelmed by the problems that we have. What am I supposed to do? And, and then it said that he breathed upon them and received the Holy Spirit. And, and for a moment, they, they got a, a fresh infilling of the Spirit. Now, was it something permanent, because that didn't come to Acts chapter 2. It's like an Old Testament infilling where the Holy Spirit will come upon Saul, and Saul will prophesy, the Holy Spirit's gone. The Holy Spirit will come upon this person, and they would say, just they is the Lord. And then the Holy Spirit would be gone, but didn't come for, didn't, he didn't come for earnest until Acts chapter 2, but he gave them... Uh, his Holy Spirit to receive so I believe they can experience the peace that they've really been struggling for. And then we get to verse 23. And this is the most troubling passage in this entire exchange. And it's a condition results. If you do this, then this will happen. And if you do this, then this will happen. Watch the implications here. If, here's the condition, you forgive the sins of any, or literally the sins of whoever. They, here's the results, are forgiven them. What? So if I forgive Debbie's sins, then Debbie doesn't have to ask forgiveness for her sins. All I have to do is forgive Debbie of her sins, and then Debbie's sins are forgiven. Second one, if, condition, you retain or don't forgive or to hold on to or get possession of or have power over the sins of any or whoever. In other words, if I refuse to forgive Debbie her sins, they are 
retained or unforgiven. So the power to forgive sins rests in me, it appears. Doesn't it? Very, very, very interesting passage here. That's one of those ones that you have to break down and figure out exactly what it's saying because it, it appears that what this verse means is something that it really can't mean. I mean, it, it can't mean what it appears to mean in the English. There must be another meaning because if it does, then it voids like everything we've ever known about anybody. I mean, why would Christ die on the cross if all I had to do was forgive somebody's sins? I'll just be a professional sin forgiver. And so, Jamie, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And you guys pay me everything. It'd be great. Or better than that, we'll set up a confessional booth. And I'll sit in the confessional booth. You guys come to me in this little little mesh here so I can't see who you are. You will confess your sins to me. I will listen to them. I will forgive you. I'll even tell you things you need to do to forgive them and do penance or say Hail Marys or donate some money. And then I will absolve you and give you absolution for your sins. Do you recognize who I'm talking about? And this is where that comes from. This is, it's on this passage that the whole idea that a human being can forgive sins, that they base the entire agency of a human priest to be able to act as God's intermediary and to be able to say to somebody, your sins are forgiven because they've been confessed to another man, but not confessed to Christ. It's a, um, that's where the whole confessional thing came from. It's where uh, the belief that a human being could actually have that power. And it's based on what looks like what this verse says. And you ask, if you ask a Catholic about that, oh, no, no, this isn't for everybody. This is only for the apostles. Christ only gave this power of agency to the apostles, which is kind of like a priest today because the priest is operating under the apostolic authority of the Pope who supposedly traces his lineage, which he doesn't, all the way to Peter. And you know how that works. And so that's, uh, that's, that's where it comes from. And quite honestly, if you took this verse at face value, you could come to that conclusion. Could you not? So I'm not saying, I'm not saying the Catholics are just really messed up here. They're really taking it for what it says, but in, in, in holding on to this, you violate so many other scriptures and the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And why would he even have to die? Because it doesn't say his death is even necessary here. It just says that I need to forgive someone's sin. So let's look at some scriptural facts here. And I want to do this with you together so that we can say, you know, are they right? Are they wrong? Should I be a Catholic? You know, I mean, do I, as even though I'm not a Catholic, do I as a pastor, which is kind of like a priest, do I, uh, do I have the right to forgive someone's sins? And if I forgive, if I forgive Carol's sins, does that mean God has to forgive those sins? Even when Carol hasn't asked forgiveness for those sins? And I mean, how does this work? Because it, it doesn't say in this verse, in the Catholic motif, they confess the sins, the priest then forgives the confessed sins. But the scripture doesn't say that. The scripture indicates that they don't even have to confess those sins, but I have the right and the power to forgive them and they'll be forgiven in heaven. See the, see the problem here? A couple facts. One, it is a teaching of scripture reiterated on many occasions that there is none who can give sins but God alone. You agree? None. Now, what the Catholic Church believes is that, yes, God is the one that forgives sins, but based on this verse, he gives that authority as a delegated authority to the agent of man. So a priest now who's sanctioned by the church, which is you know, headed over by the Pope who traces the lineage back to Peter, since Peter was one of the disciples, the, uh, the apostles, one of the key ones, that therefore a man is able to do something that only God can do. But if you believe that, it really it violates a ton of other scriptures. Two, in no instance everywhere in the scripture, anywhere, does it say that any apostle takes upon himself the authority to, ab- to absolve or pardon anyone from sin. Paul never did it. Peter never did it. The disciples never did it. There's no indication from this point on that anybody ever said that Jesus did all the time. 
Guy comes in and he's crippled. The people want to see whether he's going to heal on the Sabbath. So Jesus says, let me ask you a question, which is easier to say, pick up your man and go home or your sins are forgiven. So that you will know the son, a son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he tells the, uh, the man, pick up his man and go home. But the whole conversation began with him looking at the man saying, your sins are forgiven. Only Christ can do that. Peter never did that. John never did that. Paul never did that. They never talked about that. There's no indication they ever thought they had this authority. Number three, and here's the fatal flaw in this way of thinking. The fatal defect in the Roman Catholic view of the priesthood of believers uh, it was the fact that there were other people there other than the apostles. In other words, they believe that this authority isn't given to Billy Bob or Frank or you know the guy that works at the muffler shop who just comes to Mass. It's only the priest. Only the priest can have this authority. Why? Because this command was only given to those people in that upper room, and in that upper room there was only the apostles that were there. And you're going to find that's simply not true. The room had a lot of people in that room. Watch what happens here. I love this. Two men walking on the way to Emmaus. They meet Jesus. They come back to the apostles. They're telling a story. It says this, so they, this is the two men on the way to the Emmaus, rose up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven, which is the apostles we're talking about here, and not only the eleven, but and those who were with him gathered together. That's an undefined number of people. There was the eleven, and there was a bunch of other people that were there, probably Mary Magdalene, probably Joanna, probably the ladies that were at the tomb, probably um, the guys in Acts chapter 1 who were chosen to fill Judas's spot, probably a couple other people in that entourage that were there, the people that had followed Jesus. From, who knows how many people were there? 20, 30, 40, 50, 100? I mean, who knows? But there were obviously more than just the eleven. They came to the eleven and to those who were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they, that's the two men on the way to Emmaus, told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them, the two men, in the breaking of bread. Okay, now I'm not sure when this event happened. We're going to find out in just a second. But we know that when this event happened, there are the apostles, which are now called the eleven because Judas is gone. And uh, actually Thomas really wasn't with him at this time either. Uh, there was the two men who are on the way to Emmaus. They're actually there because they're relating this story to those two. And there's an undefined number of people who are simply referred to in Luke's account as those who were with them. Got the crowd? More than just the apostles. Watch this. Next verse. Now, as they, the two men who were given the report, said these things, at that particular time, boom, Jesus himself stood up in the midst of them and said, peace to you. When is this event taking place? Luke's recording the same event we're looking at John right here. And all of a sudden we find out that in this room where these guys are, we find the 11, the two men giving the report, and an undetermined group of other people. So when Jesus made this statement, he didn't just make it to the 12 or to the 11. He made it to everybody that was there. So the assumption is, from the Catholic Church, the assumption is that, no, that was only meant for the disciples. No, but the context, if you believe that, if you believe that this means that, that, I just have to forgive someone and their sins are forgiven. That promise was given to everyone that was there in the room, which is women, which is men that aren't in, written in Scripture, which is these two guys from Emmaus that remain unnamed, that is with the 11, and who knows who else, which would mean that that would also apply to every Christian who's ever lived, us in this room also. True? It means that in a Catholic situation, it applies to the priest, but also this guy. So why, I'll tell you what, priest, uh, you forgive me my sins, I'll forgive you your sins. This is kind of a trade-off because there's no separation there of, of clergy versus laity if you understand it. Does that make sense? And all we do is go back and just look a little deeper to see who this conversation was made to. So irrespective of that, the question we have to ask is, what does this really mean? Point four, according to the text, the verbs are remitted and are retained or in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means or suggests that the forgiveness involved is something which has already been determined in heaven is now merely proclaimed on earth. In other words, it's not the, the word in the perfect tense doesn't mean that if I forgive, they will be then forgiven. 
It means that they have already been forgiven, and I'm just proclaiming that truth in real time. Does that make sense? In other words, what I'm saying is something that has already been done. If, uh, if, if, if I forgive this person, you know, this person's sin has already been forgiven. And if I don't, his sin has not been forgiven. And that, those events has already taken place in the perfect tense. All I'm doing is making an affirmation or a proclamation about something that has already taken place. But here in point number five is the Greek words for whoever or any or them, which refer back to the first time it's used, are in the plural. In other words, it's not the sins, not of whatever person, singular, but whatever persons. In other words, we're speaking about a group of people, a, uh, a class of people, not just an individual person. It's not just, you know, Levi's sin. It's a group of people's sins. Uh, it's a plural in that. And what that means is this. This is... Leon Morris, who is another um, Bible scholar, he says this, Jesus is not speaking of individuals, which like in, in a Catholic confessional thing, we're just doing with individuals here, but of classes. He says that the spirit-filled church has authority to declare which are the sins that are forgiven and which are the sins that are retained. It's really simple. Uh, this accords with rabbinical teaching, which spoke of certain sins as bound and others as loosed. This referred to classes, not to to individuals. And this is surely what Jesus was saying also. In other words, if I'm looking at, um, if I'm looking at someone who's living in a state of adultery and hasn't confessed Christ and goes out partying every night, I can look at that person and say they belong to the class of people whose sins are not forgiven. I mean, they're not because they haven't confessed it. Christ has not forgiven them their sins. The blood of Christ has not blotted those sins out. There's no remorse there. Got that. But if I'm looking at you, even in the sins that we committed today, the fact of the matter is that uh, we can say that your sins have been forgiven. They've been forgiven past, present, future because of what Christ has already done. Not that my words actually forgive your sins, but my words simply affirm what Christ has already done by you placing your faith in him. Does that make sense? Let me show you what John MacArthur says. Um, He says this, which is excellent. He says, that which the scripture affirms, Christians can dogmatically and unhesitatedly affirm. And that which the scripture denounces, Christians can authoritatively and unapologetically denounce. I have a person, uh, whoever, uh, a group of people who are lost and they're in the middle of homosexual behavior and they're pro-abortion and they're just as, as vile and as wicked as they are. The scripture says that those people in that lifestyle without repentance, those sins will not be forgiven and they will pay the penalty for those sins trying to appease them themselves for all eternity in hell and come up short. True? And those people, on the other hand, who us who come to faith in Jesus Christ, even though we sin, those sins are paid for. They're covered by the blood of Christ. It's we've been justified. We have the peace of God. When he opens up the big book, it's blotted out by Jesus blood. When he sees me, he sees Christ and he doesn't see my unrighteousness. So we can categorically say by the authority of scripture that those sins have been forgiven. Make sense. It is a really it's a really troubling verse, and it has been for thousands of years, you know, and the Catholics have taken it more literally and have, you know, set up their theology based on this verse, which leads to the confessionalism and all that kind of stuff. And, and there's a merit to that. Don't get me wrong. I really think that if we had a time where people could get together and confess their sins to one another, it'd be a healthy cleansing thing, don't you? The sin doesn't come from confessing. Or the presumption doesn't come from confessing. The presumption comes from what happens after that. Your sins are absolved. No. Confessing your sins to me does nothing. You need to confess your sins to the Lord. And then I know your sins are absolved. Make sense? When I counsel with people, I can't tell you the number of people I've done this to before they blew up my field out there. But uh, I used to tell them, you spend some quiet time with the Lord. Yeah, I need to. Well, here's what you need to do. You need to walk that trail. I said, just go out there in the middle of that field. There's a place you can sit. There's a stump out there. You can scream out at God. You can cry out at God. You can tell God how angry you are. You can fall on your face out there. Nobody's going to see you. Nobody's going to hear you. And don't come back until you do business with the Lord. And so when they come back, 
you know, hey, I'm so glad I did that. I really got things right with the Lord. And if I asked them what they did, they would say, I confessed my sins. I told him I loved him. I feel his repentance. Uh, he's forgiven me of my sins. He's picked me up. He's dusted me off. I'm rocking on with him. I can't do that for anybody. Only they can do that. You know what I mean? And that's the difference. Let me pray.